Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for the time in your word, and we're grateful for your Holy Spirit. And in your Son's name we pray. Amen. It's always a difficult passage, James 3, because no matter how you go about it, when it says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, the person who is reading that to you has presumed to become one. All right, there's this, here I am, let not many of you become teachers, because leave it to the professionals. Well, it's not because we leave it to the professionals, it's not because we should, uh, or that we have sort of an antagonism and some sort of Quaker or Plymouth Brethren sort of way to anybody being a teacher, because we know from other scriptures that well, elders are supposed to be apt to teach, and God has given the church pastors and teachers, etc. There's a benefit. But when you have a benefit, when you have any good, this is one of the knowledge, uh, knowledge of sin, I guess, uh, um, no matter what you create, no matter what kind of Christian culture or organization you put together in your church situation, sin will find a way, right? It will mess with you, no matter what you do. You can have the perfectly designed economy, political theory, uh, church order. You could be, it could be just exactly what the apostles wanted. And even when the apostles were in charge, people still sinned. Even when Jesus Christ was running his disciples around the landscape, one of them was Judas Iscariot. Many of the Lord's disciples left him whenever he would teach something difficult. We know that whatever we do, even if we do the right thing, sin lies close at hand. And so, when the scripture tells us to have teachers, instead of us viewing them with a certain, well, that's a good, it must be always a good, the error of an inordinate good, we look at passages like this as something that rides the brakes, and it gives you the reason for riding the brakes. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, for you know that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness. I like the fact that James says, we who teach, not you who teach. It's like when Paul, applying Christian disunity to himself and Apollos, and then he applies it and says, you were not baptized in the name of Paul. You were not. Paul did not die for your sins. He applies it to his own ministry. James knows that he who teaches, this is the James, the Lord's brother, will be judged with greater strictness. Now, it's proportionate, in other words, to the crime you commit. And so if, what's the phrase, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. If you're not ready to have God reach down from his heaven and knock you end over apex into the next county, and whatever sort of judgment you perceive, temporally or in the next life, God is going to hold you as a teacher to a greater account. Let that restrain you. Well, why do you need to be restrained? 
one, the saints need, the, the, the church needs teachers, both benefits and needs, likes. But because there's a benefit and a need, and it even tells you about what degree of veneration, uh, not veneration, uh, um, those who labor in preaching and teaching, you show double honor to a favorite passage. Well, what happens then? Back, I, I was an art major. Go figure. Fine arts painting. And uh, also in history. And, and so I did a lot of study in the history of art. And, and I don't know if you've heard, the Renaissance was a big deal. Okay? Notable picture makers. Da Vinci, Raphael, Michelangelo. There's... Uh, and that was a moment, because you know the names, and you probably don't know that many names, unless you're Norm, before the Renaissance or the pre-Renaissance, you get the Giottos and the Frangelicos and those, those guys, Masaccio. You say, I haven't heard there were turtles named that Masaccio. <laughs> yeah, okay, I know what kind of education you've had. Now, why, why at the Renaissance does it become all about da Vinci and Michelangelo? They were geniuses, no doubt. But what happens since the Renaissance is da Vinci, Raphael, and um, Michelangelo made the term artist valuable. It used to be just artisans. You were just hired in help, union labor, come in to make a few gargoyles for the cathedral make it look good, design it to look nice. You had guilds, but you weren't famous. In a business sense, you may have been, but not like rock star famous. Have you noticed in the Christian church that teachers can get to be like rock stars? So that their name on the front glossy cover of a book matters. Ever flip over a Christian book at a bookstore and almost be startled by the fact that there's a full-size picture of the guy's face right there, smiling at you in that special, caring, Christian way. Well, we know, just like the artist became valuable, teachers, it's, it's a desirable gig. No heavy lifting. People just staring at you for 45 minutes, listening to everything you say. I like it. It's really nice. The pay's not great, but, you know. But for the really big boys, the pay is great. In fact, we start to be worried about suddenly how much pay starts to matter to them. So we have to be warned to stay away, because it's like, you know, you, you sing a few notes on key, and your friends say, you should go on American Idol. Because everybody knows you want to be a star. Everyone knows you want to be a famous Christian teacher if you have a single unique thought in your head about the scriptures or you led a Bible study twice and it blessed a couple of people. You start to consider becoming a teacher. Well, there's a danger, right? One, watch out for the judgment. It's commensurate. It's proportional. For we all make many mistakes, verse 2. And if anyone makes no mistakes in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body also. Now, there's a bit of confusion about this, because it starts out with teachers, 
starts talking about the tongue, and you know that in the Bible the members of the body is also terms of individual members of the body. And it could be that James is talking about the tongue as the teacher. But even if he is talking about the tongue as the teacher in the body, and the tongue needs to be controlled, it's also talking about that imagery, that me- what the metaphor is based on, is something that we all struggle with actually, not just, not just teachers, but all of us in our tongue. But it all plays in, even in it does, it's, it's seamless. There is a, the, the idea that what is the metaphor and that which is meta- made a metaphor of uh, is all connected. He can, he can move back and forth between those two worlds of what you're being warned about. Watch out for your tongue. Watch out for what your mouth says. Uh, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's just good advice. He says, we make many mistakes in what we say. Have ever thought about that quality about your mouth? Now, I'm a Wilson. That's what we do. Make a muck of it with our mouths. Just too ready to say something, too free with our sense of humor, too ready to have an opinion, too ready to argue it. And right. I didn't mention if I noticed that we're right. But it doesn't matter if we disagree, we're right. What happens to you? Have you ever watched that? You, everybody knows you shared these moments sitting around with friends talking about that moment when the words came out of your mouth and your hand went forward to grab them and shove them back in. Just trying to stop you. Why is that about the mouth? It makes many mistakes. What obviously needs a bridle because it's an uncontrolled thing. There is a quality about the tongue. Um, Have you ever had uh, the lack of control over your motor movements? Arm went to sleep and you're trying to tie your shoe Maybe you actually had too much NyQuil. Whatever the thing that caused it, you didn't, the commands from here to there just weren't quite processing. This is the extension of my will. We feel absolutely confident when I can put one foot in front of another, walk down the stairs, walk down the street, tie my shoes, hail a cab, all those things being commanded by my will. And that's what happens at the end of our physical membership, is the extension of my will. And we're considered a cripple if we don't have that extension under control. And James is letting you know that that little flag, that little banner, that little representative of the will of heaven, is dancing in the breeze affected by far more nuanced and subtle things of will 
It's one of the that really disgusting. Ever look at your tongue and it's this, this twitching mass of just a muscle. Just going, I'm ready to do anything. Not just, I can't tie shoes, but I can do anything else. I can destroy kingdoms. The tongue is that... The Lord gives that illustration in John 3 about the, the wind blows whither it will. In, in ancient times, people would look at candles burning and blowing out birthday candles as a way of reading your future in the smoke. Because you couldn't tell the chaos of smoke. You ever sit there with a cigar and you watch the smoke and you go, how is it doing that? Your tongue is like that. It is reacting to the very nuanced elements of who you are and what your will is. And that's why you knew better than to say what you just said, but you said it. Because it's dancing on the very edge of calamity and your will. That's why we put bits into the mouths of horses. That they may obey us. We guide their whole bodies. Because we're concerned about this problem, we know that the mouth, the single part, controls everything. This is why we're concerned about teaching, and we're concerned about speaking, and teachers are speakers. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds. <coughs> they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So this small area, because it is an uncontrolled function that guides the whole ship, because you should know that your mouth is dancing on breezes that you might not realize are in you when it says out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, you knew you kind of meant what you were trying to shove back in. Because the horse will run away without being broken, without being bridled, without being guided. The ship will run aground without being ruddered by a pilot who wants to take it where it's supposed to go, where the will of a pilot directs. So if I am not bridled, if I am not piloted, verse 5, so the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. So keep those things in mind. Runaway horse, uh, run aground ship, and burn to the ground um, forest. And the tongue is a fire. Now, because, it's just warned you about, in the church, you've got to watch out for who's doing the teaching, because this is the way the tongue is. We have a basic uh, problem. Now, I'm a radical Anabaptist, and I admit that. I am not someone who is big on the institution of the church, as you can tell. We don't have much institutional going on here. So take that, algebraically remove it from the equation. 
But this problem of the teachers, it's almost as if in the history of the church, the whole church has bowed down to the exact opposite of what the scriptures are teaching here. We've been all about the teachers. It warns us about the tongue in verse 6. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is an unrighteous world among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the cycle of nature, and set on fire by hell. Not a pretty picture at this point here, folks. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But no human being can tame the tongue, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Now it's sounding like that this is an irresistible evil force. But he says the next line, my brethren, this ought not be so. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is the way it is, but it's not the way it ought. So these are the concerns that we have laying out there when we listen to teaching or how we view teaching because we're participants in it. The teacher is a participant in it is that he's being suckered into this desirable role where people listen to you and, and, and become you know, followers of your peculiar doctrines. And I have peculiar doctrines and I would really enjoy it if you all agreed with me. Great restraint in telling you about them. And then there's the people who always wonder why the church does them bad. They always get hurt by the church. Oh, the church. How can I believe in God and the church? The church is always... A, but they're participating in this. They, are, they put the church in this position. They make the church the voice of God. They make the teachers the voice of God. And so men who want to have that kind of control but are not heeding these warnings, step in and guide where they want the church to be. Have you ever wondered if the church in history has really gone where Jesus Christ wanted it to be? I mean, you could point to a lot of points in history where you sort of feel the magic of the spirituality, but you, you know, it's not really going where the Lord wants, not becoming People that you agree with entirely theologically are not becoming what the Lord wants. And most of it is because of the tongue. This is where the ship's taken. This is what speaks for, and we let it speak for God. It ought not be so. Because, verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, fresh water and brackish? Can a fig tree, my brethren, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. Now, the tongue, because it seeks recognition, we're not, we're not looking at the tongue and going, okay, just deal with it, it's one of the problems, it's kind of like your other lusts, if you have this view of that Christians can never really escape sin, so you always sort of have a kind of a, a percentage of evil. So you have the lust of the flesh. And you say, well, okay, I'll keep myself pure, and then about, you know, 5 
you know, allowable area of evil. Because what, what can you do? And the tongue and, and, and ambition, pride of life. Never going to get around. Well, look at this. It's a restless evil. It's, a, it's, it's poison. It's hell. And I've, and I've got one of them. I've got a tongue. But he told you it ought not be so. We're not looking to be Trappists. We're not trying to shut up entirely to keep from sin. We're supposed to have teachers. So what do we do about this problem? Well, you can ask yourself where the bridle comes from. Who's the pilot? Now, I mentioned here on the side notes that it's a matter of a procedure. We seem to think that the church maintains or grows in a, in a, in a teaching um, curriculum, confession, catechism, creed, whatever it is, and that the representatives of that become schooled in that and they become teachers of, and, and from that the grace of the church comes swinging down to you and you finally receive it if you learn your catechism. We just encourage what is wrong about the tongue. The history of the church is the, that of teachers seeking recognition, declaring their own wisdom, claiming their own part, it wants to be recognized. The uh, following paragraph, which you could put a bright break in there and read it separately and get a blessing out of it. You could read this bit on the tongue down to 12 and get a blessing out of it, correction. But if you read them together, you realize he's just told you, don't become teachers because of the judgment. Watch out for this. How are we going to bridle the tongue? The tongue's a problem because it would perfect you if you controlled it the way it ought to be controlled. It ought not be so that it creates this kind of hypocrisy where you see people talking about the love of Jesus Christ from the pulpits of the land and treating people like trash. So the question comes up very naturally in red, the only red thing on the page there. Who is wise and understanding among you? The passage Mark read this morning, the Sadducees were kind of marveling at who it was that was talking this way to them. They were professionals. They were the temple guys. They were the fishermen. Both the confidence and the clarity about what they said. The question is, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This wisdom is not such as comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. This is part of the same warning about the tongue. It is talking to you about who do you view? Who do you put forward if you're the one putting yourself forward? Or looking to put someone forward as a teacher of the body, someone who is expressing the will of God to the saints. The question of who is wise and who is understanding 
is the question you're trying to answer. And there's a danger if I've stepped into that uncontrolled arena we're running aground, burning to the ground, what's the other one? And a runaway horse are the illustrations. And then he says, earthly, unspiritual, devilish. And we have designed the Christian church on these contending patterns of which teacher do we follow? Which set of books do we continue to read? Now, as you know, I'm a fan of C.S. Lewis. But I was a little shocked, and this is a number of years ago. Sheldon Von Aachen, may his name be blotted out, um, wrote a book called A Severe Mercy. And when it came out, Sheldon Von Aachen's uh, godfather was C.S. Lewis. And he was, I don't know, I know his godfather, an acquaintance. He had been his teacher, I think, at, at Oxford. And he was writing letters to him. So in the book were some letters by C.S. Lewis, private letters to Sheldon von Aachen, stories about how his wife dies and how he deals with it. So the cover of the book, C.S. Lewis, Sheldon von Aachen, because they knew Sheldon von Aachen was nobody. C.S. Lewis had original letters by C.S. Lewis is what they were saying. And that was with a teacher I like. But the advertising, the pushing, those of us who've been in Christian literature know what it's like. It's, it's, it's a little grimy. It, it, it's earthly, unspiritual, devilish. It's trying to convey, and we have run into, and both Roy and Mark can bear witness to this, gross, gross immoralities by famous, famous teachers whose books sold millions and millions of copies. Because they really were earthly, unspiritual, devilish. They were taking, without them knowing it, because the tongue is that, again, it's the tip of the spear, it's the, it's, it's the banner and the breeze, it's jumping around with all the incredible nuance of your complicated soul. And it's revealing things. And even when you're teaching Bible, <coughs> there's a temptation that you're teaching and you ever run into somebody who you know, plows it in as a Christian teacher, into some moral turpitude, and you look back at their teaching and go, yeah, I should have spotted that. That was coming out of the pulpit. That was being arranged. That was being hinted at. We're supposed to find out who's wise in understanding. We're up to being manipulated by this urge. This is the one urge of the three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Um, we're big on rejecting the lust of the flesh. I think Christians have largely, you know, sex is icky, and, and so they, they got that old Gnostic uh, antipathy for it. And so everybody's on board with anything that's pleasurable. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. Whether Christians, they become shakers, you know, uh, no more relations. We're fine with that. And for a while there, we were fine with the elimination of beauty, if that's what you think the lust of the eyes is, and I do. 
But the pride of life, we all must bow down and worship at that altar. And that's where teachers come from. And because the Christian church does not have its guard up against the pride of life, we think because we sanctify that particular pride of life, the you know, advancement for the kingdom, the humility and the bona fides of the teacher are not so necessary. We're almost happy to become followers of peculiar teachers. But it said back in verse 13, ask the question, then it gives the answer. Who is wise in understanding? By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Results in his life. When you see teachers whose results in their life do not become a credit to the kingdom, what do you do with all their teaching? Something, it doesn't say here what you do, say throw it away, burn all their books, doesn't tell you to do things like that, but it requires for you to understand someone who's going to get up and let their tongue run away with them in the company of the saints. You've got to have, as a parishioner, a certain guard up against, one, your own tongue, two, the teacher's tongue. Because your own tongue is leading you astray, and so is the teacher's tongue leading you astray. You want to watch to whether, when it says in Hebrews, examine the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. That's what it tells you to do with teachers. Look at what the good life, let them show the works and the meekness of wisdom. You've heard me often quote that proverb. The wise man is wise for himself. And if the teacher does not know that, the wisdom he's supposedly sharing is supposed to be lived by him. He's got to have a good life as a result. And it's got to be an un- self-promoting kind of wisdom. That's what meekness of wisdom. you got to somehow have people see the results of your life in a way that does not trot. What was it? Doug Phillips who went down in flames a few months ago. He was always trotting out his family for family photos. His faithful wife, his eight children, his unfaithful self. It wasn't the meekness of wisdom. His works were being shown by the necessity of advertising. And bitter jealousy and selfish ambition causes you to boast and be false to the truth. Selfish ambition. Believe me, the church is a place where people want to get ahead. I feel the temptation myself. I have a small church. I'm happy to be with you folks, but you know what? What's the deal with that? I mean, there's, there's, there's just this urge. Wouldn't it be great if there were people there? Right? There, there aren't people. With all these, and, and pastors are always looking at places where there aren't people. I know I'm tempted. Anybody who would be in a position of conveying to someone else 
an idea that you hope registers with them. You're trying to have your will go further than yourself. That's the nature of the beast. We know that, that just like marriage involves sex, it's almost like, uh, should we allow marriage and sex together? Well, God allowed it, even though the temptation is one of the big ones. Same is true with the extension of our wills. Ambition in business, success in the political, international, national world. All those require ambition. But right there, it's not just that you're ambitious, it's not just that you're successful, it's not just that hey, you're a godly man who has a big church. You have to, the procedure you have to be following is proving that you are in the light with Christ and in your wisdom. That the kind of wisdom you have is meekness. Because as soon as it's bitter jealousy, where's the other pastor getting to? Soon as it's selfish ambition, it starts to cause your boasting. And you become at odds with what is true. That's not from God. The competition from pastors, great and famous teachers, writers of Christian books, is not from God. For where there is jealousy, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And what have we seen in the history of the church but disorder and every vile practice? when we have to argue not from he could never go to the history of the church and go to a non-Christian look, I want to show you something the greatest thing that ever happened have you noticed that in 2,000 years the church has just behaved itself admirably well, you spend most of your time apologizing right? I'm sorry and I'm sorry for that too the Crusades, I don't know what was getting into my head. You have to have, you're not, you're not arguing, thankfully you're not arguing for the history of the church. The history of the church is the history of people doing this the wrong way. Doing Christianity the way they're not supposed to. Selfish ambition. Even when you agree with the moment in history. And these new startling teachers coming down the pike, be they, you know, Reform Reformation Protestants or whatever, and they're saying the right thing and they're speaking truth to power and whatever else you want to put it in there as... They started acting earthly and unspiritual and devilish, even with the right doctrine. Because you want to know who is wise and understanding. You want to go looking for those teachers in Christian history who seemed to back away from that conflict. They had strong views. You know, guys like Richard Baxter, great Puritan divine, you know, just he knew when people were getting earthly, unspiritual, and devilish about doctrine, he agreed with. You can find these men. There are good men in the history of the church. But usually they're not very loud because they're not boasting. They're not being false to the truth. They're not operating by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. <coughs> because all the vile practices are a result of the people that did. And don't be confused with the correctness of their view. Because the wisdom they had was not from above. It tells you what wisdom from above is. 
But the wisdom from above is first pure. The wisdom from below operates on how do I get my teaching ministry ahead? How do I am I more success, successful? How can I beat out the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and the Lutherans? How can I outdo on the evangelical independent churches? How can I outdo the other evangelical independent churches? How can I sell more books? We want to be led. Remember, the pilot directs where this tongue leads that group, leads that body. Where does your tongue lead you? You, you want to have the wisdom from above. The church wants to have the wisdom from above. Check its purity. Is it motivated by holiness, not by ambition? Then peaceable. It doesn't cause disorder and every vile practice. It causes order and holiness. It's gentle. You know how hard that is. You know when that passage in Galatians says every brother is overtaken in a trespass. You who are spiritual and you go, check, I'm spiritual. I saw how wrong that guy was. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Oh, back. Because by the time you're ready to go restore somebody, you're not what you'd call in a gentle frame of mind. You always want to bring it home to them. Gentle. Open to reason. This is probably brought, that, that phrase brought this passage to my life, I think. That wisdom from above isn't presuming that it's right. When you think you have the wisdom from above, of course you're right. Right? It's wisdom from above. But wisdom from above understands the folly, finitude, and incapability of all of us to know, and so consequently, wisdom from above would be open to being corrected. Open to reason. Full of mercy. That's what we're... And that's what we're promulgating. We're pushing mercy in this world. God's mercy, our mercy, and good fruits. What does that tell you what those things are? Because you probably have an idea when you have been made good by the Holy Spirit, you start to do right and good things for other people. Whether it's evangelistic or whether it's just good deeds. But although you're open to reason, because you know you're not the smartest you know, a uh, person on the planet. But you are you, and you're not, I don't believe, I think I'm probably wrong. I just don't know where. So I'm depending on you guys to correct me. So I need to be open to reason, but at the same time, don't think that a teacher from, with wisdom from above is going to operate in an uncertain fashion, because it tells him, without uncertainty. How do you think? You have both and. You can speak with certainty, with wisdom from above, and be open to reason. You've heard me quote that line out of Lewis's essay on obstinacy and belief, where he says that belief is the psychological exclusion of doubt, but not the logical exclusion of dispute. You can meditate on that for a while. I know it's true. I know it's true. Now, how am I able to listen to somebody else's reasons, even though I know it's true? 
Because if it's not about you, if it's not about your advancement, if it's not about your pride, you don't feature largely in it. We're not faking this. No insincerity, or no, no uncertainty, and no insincerity. That's where a lot of trouble comes, because sometimes guys will say wonderfully true things, wonderfully true things, and their lives are wreck because they're not sincere. There have been some awful televangelists I've seen at times. I used to listen to a few on, on TV and be just amazed at their preaching ability. And they'd say really good things. And you go, oh, I know what's going on here, but that was really good. Well, they're insincere. They just understand how to preach to people. With those things, above you get disorder in every vile practice. If the things that are earthly, unspiritual, and devilish, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, people moving after their own extension of will and not understanding how much their tongue needs to be bridled by this wisdom. Their tongue is not to be bridled by earthly wisdom of selling Christian books, but bridled by this wisdom that keeps the church in order because it says, and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's what it produces. That's what you want. That's what you're after. Not church growth. Church growth not a problem with church growth. Great if your church grows. But that's not a, you might say, a, a sufficient condition for success. Nor is it necessary. This is the necessity, that the harvest of righteousness be sown in peace by those who make peace. And that's what your tongue ought to be out there doing. You as a parishioner, or if you become a teacher, and if you do this, find this wisdom today, as you grow in grace and grow in knowledge of the truth, and finally get promoted into other people's lives as someone who teaches them the word, you're this kind of teacher. Not the one who was pushed into it by campus leaders who said, you know, you ought, to get, you ought to go start teaching Bible studies. You ought to do this, that, and the other. That's why it says, do not appoint a novice. They may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the snare of the devil. But you want to be sowing this harvest, or reaping this harvest, in this kind of peace, God wants to use you at some point. As you grow in knowledge, you'll be ready for his use. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very thankful. Keep us from our own tongues. Watch over the winds of our own selfish interests that cause it to drive certain ways and claim certain things and want more for itself. Lord, help us look to you and your spirit for the wisdom that you provide that has a humility that produces a life that is worth your kingdom. And Lord, if those of us who listen to others teach us, Lord, help us hold them to that standard that we examine the outcome of their life and is their life at peace then we can imitate their faith. 
Thank you for this morning in your son's name. Amen.